Hello, and welcome to the newest episode of the Redeeming the Time podcast. Today is a very special episode for a couple of reasons. First of all is that we have a new microphone, which means that my audio here in my safe protected closet should be very clean and pristine, finally, no longer using a laptop. And the second impact of that is that the audio that I recorded in practice was a huge, tremendous failure because this new microphone is a little more sensitive than I realized, and it picked up a lot of extra noise. So what you're going to find when you're listening to today's recording is that it has a little bit, uh, how do I put it? It it sounds like I recorded in a restaurant because you can hear uh, a lot of dishes being clanked around, and that was completely unintentional. But as time goes on, we're going to figure out how to use this microphone. I should have tested before I went into that new setting. But the other reason that today's episode is very special is because for the first time, we have a guest on the core Redeeming the Time podcast. Today, I podcasted with Justin Villamere, decent friend of mine. I met Justin a few years ago. He started coming to our church. I converted to a Protestant from a Catholic church. And since then, since graduation, he has moved to Arizona. He has some family out there. And he's been to a few different colleges. And he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. He he tries very hard to do everything that he can for the Lord, and he's very interested in new academic pursuits. And so for today's podcast, I needed someone to talk to, someone to interact with, to play the audience in this case. Because what I needed them to do is to learn something, learn something that I was teaching, because I had just learned something myself, and I really wanted this to uh, affect someone else. And so we put Justin in as a stand-in for you, the audience, to actually learn as I'm speaking. What we discussed on today's episode was understanding design patterns in biblical narrative. This is a concept that I learned from the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, the Bible genius on the Bible Project. They have a website and YouTube channel and all sorts of stuff. You can find their content at thebibleproject.com. You can also find a link to their page on redeemingthetime.online in the resources tab. I shout them out because they're simply a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. I've certainly learned a lot from them, and this episode basically works as a giant advertisement sharing through uh, one of their podcasts. So I basically recreate this uh, lesson that Tim Mackey gives in one of his podcasts, uh, which is episodes one, two, three, and I think four of Design Patterns in Biblical Narrative, which you can find in their podcast. Uh, I discussed a design pattern dealing with temptation and explained all that to Justin in a way that I hope he understood. And I hope that you get to understand that too. And my hope with this is that you're encouraged by the crazy mind-blowing things that I've learned and that I hope Justin learned and that I hope you learn and that you go and explore the Bible Project and their content because it has blown my mind continually as you'll hear me say. Uh, I didn't count but I'm guessing it's probably like 600 times in this podcast that I say it's incredible and that's because it is. It's because this content has absolutely blown my mind and so uh, join in in this next section and listen to the wonderful podcast that I recorded with Justin Villamere, the one and only. And I'll see you guys on the other side. So, today, I'm meeting up with Justin, and he said that he had no idea what to do on the podcast. And I said, well, good, because I know what to do on the podcast. 
because I have been learning some really cool things in scripture lately, and I want to share them and see what uh, the reaction of someone else is when I talk about it. I don't know if I should be excited or scared right now. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. I'm really, I've learned so much lately, and I, I, I can't get enough of it. So there is a YouTube channel and website and podcast uh, group known as The Bible Project, and I'm sure you've heard of them. I yeah. talk about them all the time. Uh, how much, how familiar with them are you? Um, I'm relatively f- familiar. Um, my young adult pastor, he actually has like the whole, the huge book. Oh, does I think he? it's like a book itself is almost like two feet long. It's like ginormous. Jeez. Goodness. But I know I've, I've looked through, um, quite a few of it. And I know, uh, when we went through Hebrews, <laughs> um, last year, I don't think it was before that you were, um, at transit. Um, mm-hmm. we did the Bible project. We went through the video for that. Did and kind he? Of followed yeah. Along with that. So. So Something that I'm relatively like the familiar poster with. That they film, yeah, it's right? a poster yeah. with kind of like the different yeah. drawings, and then kind of like there's a bunch of arrows leading towards like different yeah. directions. Yeah, so their videos are incredible, and so that's part of their uh, their read scripture series, I think. Uh, but they do have another series, which is my favorite series, which is called the How to Read the Bible series. And in that, they break the Bible down into three different uh, types of literature. So there's narrative. There's poetry and there's discourse. And within narrative, they talk about plot, which is interesting to see how plot works in different uh, sections and stories and bits. Like this is the story of Samson. Here's how plot his plot works and so on and so forth. And they talk about what different characters mean and all that type of stuff. And then they get to something really cool in design patterns. So design patterns are something that you don't necessarily talk a lot about in scripture. We're aware of some of them, but there are some really, really cool ones out there. And so what I'm going to be going through today is totally a rip off of the Bible Project podcast. So they have the videos off of this, uh, but in my opinion, their video of this discussion in no way brings up as much detail as it should, just because the podcast has so much information. Uh, So... What I'm going to do is I'm not going to explain what I'm doing, and I'm just going to let it speak for itself as we move through scripture here. So what we're going to do is we're going to follow a design pattern that goes through a majority of the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, and it changes a little bit when it gets to the New Testament, and it's really cool. So we're going to start at the beginning with Genesis 1. I've just got notes through here that's going to go through it. So in Genesis 1, we see God creating the world. It's pretty epic. Okay. Right. Every time he creates something, he sees that it's good. It specifically says that on every single day, it repeats that. And God saw that it was good. Yahweh saw that it was good. And that Hebrew word is tov. It just means good, basically. Yeah. Uh, it's the root word of some other words. We'll get to that later. But this, as far as just don't memorize tov, it's just good. Um, and the other word saw is another key word we're going to be seeing a lot. So good and then saw. And then after God creates everything and sees that it is good, he sees that man is alone. And he says that that is low tov or not good. So he creates woman, which is the woman is eventually named Eve, which is life. And Adam is Adam, which means human. So the two original humans, human and life. life. So (laughs) basically, and this is something that you use in Christianity anyways, is understanding that, you know, we live in a fallen world and this is the fall. This is like the base template story of sin. And so in this created world, 
God sees what is good and he provides what is good. So he is the seer and provider of all that is good. He defines good, creates good. So then we get to Genesis 3 and the serpent tempts Eve and shows her the fruit and says, you, you know, you should eat this, you know, you'll become wise, so on and so forth. And specifically what the Bible says in the same Hebrew words are the woman saw that the fruit was good. She ra'ad that it was tov. So the same words there. So all of a sudden now human or life in this case is uh, defining, defining good. good. Yeah, on her own. And then it says that she takes it. She sees that it's good to eat. And so she takes it. So those are three key words. They're going to be a signal for everything we're going to see as we go through this. And this was all done by Tim Mackey. He's an amazing guy. So, like, I am in no way a Bible scholar, advanced enough to find any of this on my own. So if you want to hear it explained better, go listen to that podcast. Uh, it's a four-part series called Design Pattern and Biblical Narrative on the Bible, pod, uh, the Bible Project podcast. And you can get a link to their website on redeemingthetime.online. I put a link to them on the resources tab because they are phenomenal. Just a subtle plug. Yeah, definitely go listen to them because they're smarter than I am. Uh, and visit the website. <laughs> uh, so the woman sees that the fruit is good and she takes it. And then there's another word in here. It's coal voice. Um, so we're going to be tracking two things. We're going to be tracking those three words and we're going to be tracking key uh, images, phrases, and like patterns in the plot. And so there's a temptation, which I've highlighted in green from my notes, which you guys unfortunately can't see, but Justin can see. Uh, green in my notes is going to be the signal of uh, a temptation or a tempter. And then the fruit becomes an object of something that is desired, that is identified by the humans to be good. And then, so God comes up and he says, what I have in blue here is he says, what have you done? He identifies it after the fact. He says, what have you done? And then there's always a blame game right after that. Right after someone gets called out, <laughs> we're going to see this over and over and over again, that there's a blame game. So Adam blames the woman. And the woman blames the serpent, and the serpent has no one to blame. And then he goes in reverse order, curses the serpent, then curses the woman, then curses the man. And so there's this curse, which includes banishment, and also the nat uh, natural consequence, which is shame. Shame, yeah. Yeah. So just kind of keep all that in mind. There's nothing too groundbreaking in there. Just keep that basic pattern in mind. So then we go to Genesis 16. With Sarah and Abraham, or at this time, Sarai and Abram. They haven't been given their awesome names yet. So at this point in the story, Abraham has been told that he's going to be a father of this great big nation, uh, but he's a little old. And so him and Sarah are kind of doubting a little bit that they're going to have a child. And so the voice of temptation in green comes in. And Sarai says to Abram, sleep with my, wa uh, my uh, slave, Hagar, my Egyptian slave, Hagar. And so Abraham listened to the coal of Sarai. <coughs> that goes back a little bit to Genesis right. 6, the voice and all that. Because uh, God calls out Adam and says, because you listened to the coal, the voice of the woman instead of to mine. So now Abram listens to the voice of his wife instead of to what God said and said that you will be, you know, this father. You don't, right. you don't have to manufacture it. You, I'm just going to make it happen. But he didn't trust that. He listened to the voice of his wife, which gave him this obviously terrible advice right. to sleep with this Egyptian slave, Hagar. And so Sarai took Hagar and gave him to Abram. It's a weird way to phrase it, but it's a signal word. Took. We've seen this before. And if you go in, into a concordance, you'll see that this usually appears in specific uh, things that follow this right. pattern. Then 
After Hagar conceives with Abram, her mistress becomes lesser in her eye. She starts to think less of Sarai, and it seems to be that she's kind of getting like, ooh, maybe I'll be the favorite one, because like, I'm going to be the mother of this right. you know, great nation that is apparently coming in. And Sarai gets upset that she's not being um, treated so well by the Egyptian slave. And she complains, or blames, Abram, says, look what you've done, you know, right. totally, sorry. She told her, to, she told him to do it. And then she goes and blames him for this whole mess. And Abram says back to her, okay, she's bugging, she's bugging you. Do what is good in your eyes. So now he straight up tells Sarai to define good for herself and just do it. So another temptation right. and also bad advice. And so what does Sarai do? She abuses her. She abuses the Hebrew slave, or the uh, Egyptian slave. And so then she flees, which is, again, cues us back into creation uh, when they flee from the garden after the fall. And then this is, you can't even make this stuff up. Then God goes to Hagar and Hagar calls him, you are the God who sees. So once again, we have seeing, taking, and defining good for yourself. So these three things keep patterning into what is called the temptation uh, temptation narrative, which gets repeated every time someone makes a really, really bad mistake. You'll see this same pattern of saw that it was good and they took it, even when it doesn't make sense, even when the, the bad thing they're doing isn't something that you take, which is like, why would you use those Hebrew words? It's a clue letting you know that it's tied in with this whole narrative. Right. So then you see it again, Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. And so the people, uh, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days, and the people, um, most of our English translations say when people saw that Moses delayed, but the root word means shame, so it's kind of weird. And so the implication seems to be that um, Moses is shaming the Israelites, or the Israelites are ashamed that they're just waiting out, like, what are we doing here while Moses is up there, or, you know, is he even dead, are we just waiting around for nobody? So they go to Aaron and they say... Come and make us gods or idols. And so Aaron takes, uh, excuse me, takes the gold of the Israelites and makes a golden calf and another object uh, like the fruit and like Hagar. And when Aaron, yeah, so Aaron builds it and then it says that he sees it. Again, another unnecessary use of the word. It's obvious he saw it. He built it. Right. And then yeah, how, do you, how do you build yeah. something that you, you, yeah. you don't look at? Why in this, you know, out of all the words and, you know, the incredibly dense literature of the Bible, you know, God-inspired word, would he have to include that Aaron saw the thing he was building? That's just implied by the story. But it fits that word in there, which is uh, ra'ah in Hebrew. He saw it and then built an altar before it. And then so God says to Moses, go get down. We'll see that again. This is adding into the narrative. So now it's kind of building up its library of tools it can use. Uh, he goes down with Joshua and they see, or they hear a noise, which is the same word as voice in Hebrew. It's coal. Uh, and it's not the coal of victory or the coal of defeat. It's not the coal of like something actually happening. It's the coal of like singing. Like what is going on? And they get down there and there's this massive, you know, orgy going on in front of this golden calf. And so Moses blames them and says, what did you do? Specifically to Aaron, what did you do? Right. And he shifts the blame. He says, well, you know, these people, they're evil. They're, they just are what they are. So all I did was throw some gold into the fire and this calf came out. 
Come on, you four? That is the dumbest excuse I've ever heard. Okay, right. So it's always a just a shift of it's a yeah. consistent shift of blame is, yeah, is really what it comes down to. Yeah, Sarah blamed Abram for something that was totally her inspiration. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent, and now Aaron is blaming the people, and then just this fire that spit out this you know golden calf. Clearly, you know, Aaron shouldn't have done that. And mind you, this is the guy who was just appointed to be high priest by God. Well, Moses was up on the mountain. He's like, Aaron's going to be the high priest. And then he comes down and he's literally building idols for the people to worship while Moses is gone. It's hilarious. And then it gets repeated with a guy named Achan in Jericho. So there's a clue that we're going to follow the creation uh, Adam and Eve narrative again because there's a seven-day cycle where the seventh day is different, which is the cycle of creation. So six days of creation and then the seventh day of rest. Uh, they're called to march around Jericho for six days. And then on the seventh day, they march around it like seven times or something and like blow their horns and stuff. And it's crazy. But it's clearly a clue to be looking at how this relates to the creation narrative. And they're told not to take the plunder of Jericho, of course, because it is sacred to the Lord. But then Achan, a guy, does take it. He takes gold and a Babylonian cloak and he takes it. And so because they disobeyed, things go really, really bad really quick. They start losing a battle. It gets really bad. Uh, and so Joshua, he falls down on his face and he's like, God, what happened? And God's like, what are you doing in your face? Get up because someone took, someone disobeyed what I said and you need to go get him. Right. And so then there's this really weird part where instead of now, mind you, God is just giving this direct revelation to Joshua. It's just speaking clearly to Joshua. But then says, you're going to cast lots to find out who it is. Why not just tell him? Like, if you are already got the communication open, just tell him. It was this guy named Achan to the tribe of this, so, you know, so on, so on, so on. Right. And so lots are kind of thrown in here, and it doesn't make any sense in this narrative. But they cast lots and work it down by tribe and family until they get to this guy named Achan. And they ask him, what have you done? And he explains that he saw a beautiful, which is, yeah, it's the same Hebrew word. It's tovat. Uh, which is just tov, beautiful, good, a cloak, and a tongue of gold, which gold becomes synonymous with idolatry in the Bible. I mean, it also becomes, it's in the temple. Right. But it can be taken and seen and, you know, consumes people. So it can also be used as an idol. So he sees a something that he wants, including gold, like the golden calf, and he wanted it, so he took them. And then he hides it, just like Adam and Eve hid themselves. He hides the plunder. He buries it in his tent. And so then, well, when Moses came down from the mountain, he destroys the calf with fire and like right. smashes it and stuff. And then they do to Achan the same that they did to the calf. They stone him and they burn his remains. It's like this ridiculous, like over the top, purging him out, just like Moses did to the golden calf. Purge it, get rid of it. And this is where things get really interesting is when we get to the Samuel narrative. So this really starts to blow up and you start to see it kind of culminate all this design pattern. You know, we've seen these same patterns of temptation and failure and sin in this template that the Bible is built in using key repeated words to trigger like, hey, this is part of that set. And then when we get to Samuel as king or Samuel and, you know, Saul and King and David and all that, it really comes to this great combination of a single verse that everybody knows, but no one realizes it's backed by the entirety of scripture before you can get to this point. So the people say to Samuel, give us a king. And then God says to Samuel, quite oddly, he says, heed their voice. Which is interesting because in the temptation narratives we've already seen, it's never a good thing to listen to something's voice. Don't listen to the voice of the snake. Don't listen to the, snake of, uh, the voice of the woman. 
Don't listen to Sarai's voice. Don't listen, you know, people have bad ideas. Don't listen to their voice. Right. Listen to the voice of God. But then God says, heed their voice, Samuel. That's weird. Why would he say that? And then he tells them, make sure that the people know what this king is going to do to them. And of course, the answer is taxes and all kinds of crap. But what I've never noticed before is that it uses that word take, which in Hebrew is kah. I think I'm saying that right. Kah, take, five times. And there's other stuff in there, like taking one-tenth, which is an idea of taking what is sacred to God and all this. There's all kinds of imagery in that one little uh, package. And so after he gives this warning, Israel disperses. He says, all right, fine. We made the decision. We're going to get a king, but it's going to take some time. So Israel kind of, you know, the leaders break up and disperse all over again. And some time passes. And so then the narrative shifts to talk about Saul. And it says that there was nobody more handsome than him among all of Israel. And again, it's the root word tov with uh, a prefix in Hebrew that I can't remember, but it's tov. There was no one more good in all of Israel than Saul. And specifically referring to how he looks. And so Saul ends up going to this prophet, Samuel. And the narrative, and this is really, really interesting. You know how we've had all these injected words that seem kind of unnecessary? So this was written... Well after the events had passed, so Samuel was long dead before this record was being collected. If I recall correctly, this was collected after the exile. So, you know, the language has changed quite a bit, the culture has changed quite a bit, and now they're recording and compiling all these older works. And whoever compiled all the information and data and stuff injects a little bit into the story. It says, now we use prophet here, because prophet is the word that we say now. Right. But... Back in Saul's day and the day of these events, they didn't call them the Hebrew word prophet. They called them the Hebrew word for seer because he sees. Why inject that word? What? That's such an unnecessary detail. Why is it among all the prophets that we didn't need to know that prophet used to be called seer until this account? It's because seeing becomes this crucial part in the story. And so Saul does find Samuel and Samuel tells him, yes, I am the seer. And are you not what all of Israel desires? He sees him and sees that he's tall and handsome and would make a good king and says, all of Israel sees and desires for you to be king. Again, fascinating using our same words, cluing us in. So we see this and now we're thinking of all of these other temptation narratives. And these are only a few. These are the ones that uh, Tim uses as examples uh, in his podcast. So he sees that Saul is very desirable, that he's very tov. And then Saul is anointed. And there's an interesting bit in here. God never puts his stamp of approval on this. When he tells Samuel, you're going to make him king, he doesn't say, I have chosen him to be king. He says, Samuel, you will make this person king. And then he comes up and makes this person king. But God's stamp of approval is never put on Saul. He just tells Samuel. He just foretells the future. Yeah, he foretells to Samuel what is about to happen. But he never endorses Saul as king, which you'll see later. He will endorse someone as king, but not Saul. So anyways, Samuel anoints Saul, and he's chosen as king in that moment. And then he's chosen again. Very weird. He's brought before all of Israel, and they do what? They cast lots. Why? Again, very weird that they'd inject lots into the story, but now we're thinking about Achan, because what's about to happen is going to remind us of Achan again. They cast lots, and what do you know? It is Saul, even though he's already been anointed as king. And they go, like, okay, where's Saul? So we can celebrate with him. And he's just gone. Like, what the heck? And... God says, I see him. He's over there. He's hiding in the luggage. And so our key imagery there again is hidden. So he's hidden himself in the same way that Achan previously hid the gold. 
And so what we see is now in this version of this temptation template, Saul is the idol. Saul is the gold that was hidden like Achan hid the gold and the things he shouldn't have taken. And Uziel should have never taken Saul as their king. So again, all these weird words clue you into everything. So Saul is hidden and God sees him. And then after they bring him back out, Samuel says, do you see that there is nobody like him among all of the people? Uh, and it specifically refers to his height, if you read that passage in First uh, Samuel 10. First to his height, which there's a different design pattern there, because we're going to see some very tall characters in the future for uh, King Saul. So then this progresses a little bit, and it turns out that Saul is a sucky king. And so... Um, Gee whiz, I mean, God didn't appoint him. Yeah, of course he was. He was everything that God said he was going to be, which was he's going to tax you, drag you into wars, like people are going to die, all this crap. Because you chose to have a king instead of just listening to, you know, the theocracy here. And so he's a sucky king. And then God eventually, like within a few years of Saul's reign, totally rejects him as king. Uh, namely, after he makes an illegal sacrifice. And that's where we get the bit uh, where Samuel tells him God has uh, chosen a man after his own heart. Someone who will take your place. And he's referring to David. Of course, Samuel doesn't know he's referring to David yet, but he tells that to Saul. And it keeps going on about Saul's history, and then eventually it comes time to choose the new king. And so God goes to Samuel and says, I'm sending you to Jesse. Kind of goes on a secret mission. He has to keep it secret from Saul. But he goes to Jesse because among his sons, there is a king. So God is now saying, I have chosen the king now. And it's among Jesse's sons. So now God has taken ownership of the king. And so he goes up and sees all of uh, Jesse's sons. And he sees Eliab and that he is Tov. And he says, oh, surely this is the one. So Samuel sees for himself, this has got to be king. Because I can see that he is, you know, tall and great and stature and all this stuff. Uh, he's the eldest of Jesse's sons. And then this verse, okay? This wonderful, amazing verse. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not see his sight. It, it will never read like this in English, by the way. Because in Hebrew, it uses these same root words. But in English, that sounds terrible. So you wouldn't be able to tell reading in English that this is... What is being cued in here? But in Hebrew, you can clearly see, do not see his sight. In English, that's usually do not look at his appearance. Two yeah. totally different words. But in Hebrew, it's the same. <clears throat> do not see his sight. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man sees the outward sight and the Lord sees the heart. And so this whole narrative about seeing and taking and defining good for yourself is what this verse is about. It's not isolated. It's not just referring to Eliab. It's this whole idea about the temptation of mankind, backed by the entirety of scripture, all the way back to Genesis 1. It's an incredible design pattern. I can't get enough of it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of crazy how it comes yeah. full picture like that. Yeah. Like, you, you would never really, like, yeah. just kind of looking, I feel like a lot of times we kind of do a disservice by kind of, like, looking at those mm -hmm. stories as kind of, like, isolated incidents yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And it kind of, it all... It collects together to make a bigger narrative. Yeah, and we do that all the time with the Bible. We look at the Bible and we assume that it is moral commentary. We say, hey, look, this person did that thing and it was a good choice, so we should imitate that thing, you know. That's not how it is, you know. Samson, like, don't don't cut your hair, Samson. So none of us should cut our hair. We should, you know, not... Or the real moral that people tend to take out of it is don't let, you know, a significant other corrupt you in the way that Samson was corrupted by Delilah. But that's not what the Bible is for. It's not a bunch of fables like, you know, Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare and stuff. It's not isolated stories that give you moral pictures of how you should behave. It's this incredible... I mean, the whole thing is alive. 
This entire passage, I mean, if you look at the span from Genesis to First and Second Samuel, it's this huge span of history and all kinds of stuff. And it's all referring to each other. It's talking, it's alive, like, it's incredible. And if I told you, like, half an hour ago, that I was going to show you this secret code that was in the Bible, <laughs> you wouldn't believe me. But when you look at this, it's like, this whole thing is alive and talking to itself. It's crazy. And so that's why, when I listened to their podcast, I was, like, blown away. This is incredible. Mm. And then, of course, you know, David is clearly going to be an amazing king because out of all this, you know, David is chosen because the Lord chooses him and he's, you know, king in secret and all that stuff. And then finally Saul dies, he takes king and clearly, you know, the best rule of all time, right? Right. Until he falls to the same pattern. Until he gets... David and Bathsheba follow the same temptation narrative that the rest of these characters have all faced. He sees a woman bathing and that she is very tovat, beautiful. And then he takes. And then he says, who is that woman? He inquires with a voice of temptation. And then he takes her. Again, very odd. She comes to him and then he takes her. Why? So that we can use the word take to clue you into this temptation narrative. And then he does all this stuff to try and hide it. He, you know, tries to get it to look like it's Uriah's kid. And that doesn't work because Uriah is too loyal. Uriah is more loyal to Israel and to David than David is to himself and to Israel. Which is really convicting for David. And then... Under this whole secret code, he exchange, you can read it. He sends a letter with Uriah that Uriah can't read to the commander. And the commander has to send a message back to David without revealing to anybody, including the messenger, that this was a conspiracy to kill Uriah. And so there's this whole secret code. He says, just kind of like slip it in there that Uriah has tragically died in battle. And the messenger goes and tells David this in the presence of other people. And David goes, you know, well, it was a sacrifice that, you know, needed to be made for the people. Utter, bold-faced lie. David had him killed, murdered. Terrible, terrible narrative about David. This amazing king that God chose for himself. And so then Nathan, the prophet, uh, Nathan calls him out on it. You know, he goes in and tells this whole story about a sheep. And David acknowledges that one of the characters in that story is evil and should be punished. And then Nathan says to him, you are that person. You did this because the Lord has seen what you have done. You've hidden it from the people. Well, the Lord has seen what you have done. And I didn't write this into the notes, but he uh, he says, I'll raise up adversity in your own house. And he curses David and says that people around you will actually steal your wives from you. They'll take them for themselves. And you've done this hidden, but I will do this to you in the sight of all of Israel, that you'll be ashamed. It'll be in the light of the sun. So all this imagery of seeing, again, into the temptation narrative. So we have basically by this point, and these are not, this is not exhaustive. But up to this point, we've built a really good pattern of what temptation looks like. The Bible's own language description of temptation and sin, of seeing that something is good and then taking it. But then we get to the Gospels, and the Gospels are incredibly dense literature in the way that Jesus fulfills a lot of prophecy. But he also builds off of a lot of imagery from the Old Testament, and you really have to be looking for it to notice it. But he does have a temptation narrative. And it's really short because he doesn't get through the whole thing because he's awesome. So Satan takes him into the desert and he tempts him with three things. And in the third one, it specifically uses our language here. Now it's in Greek. So the words, our key words aren't there, but the key images are still there. So then the Satan, which that's its own thing of calling him the Satan, but then the tempter took him up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory or their goodness. He shows Jesus, that they're good. He's trying to get Jesus to fall into the same temptation trap as the rest of humanity by 
giving him all the pieces he needs to see and take. And he says, all these things I will give you if you bow down and worship me. So this is the flip side of seeing and identifying as good and taking. He's giving him all the pieces and says, and I will give it to you. Not that Jesus takes it, but I will give it to you if you worship me. And of course, Jesus doesn't. He says, away with you, tempter, for it is written that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus rejects the tempter's suggestion to define good for his own selfish reasons. He refuses. I will not define good. And here's why. He explains. I will not define good and evil for myself because the Lord has already defined good and evil. So I'll submit myself to his definition of good. And so Jesus comes in and totally upsets the pattern and acknowledges it with the scripture that he references. That's why he chooses this. He's not just saying, I won't bow to you because you're not God. He's saying, I will refuse to be tempted by you because I refuse to define good for myself anyways. It's incredible. And then it happens again in the garden. He prays during his greatest temptation to not go to the cross. He says, well, in Luke, he specifically tells the disciples twice, pray that you do not enter temptation and then prays for himself yeah. and says, if you will take this cup away from me, but Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Or not my good, but your good be done. Your definition. Again, it's Greek. It's not, it's not the same words that we're using in the Hebrew, but it's the same idea that Jesus refuses to define good for himself. And so we've built up this temptation narrative and then Jesus comes in and upsets it twice. That's his perfection. It's incredible. You would, it's not, it doesn't just say, and Jesus was perfect and never sinned. It gives us this imagery of showing him the same thing that all these other characters have fallen to, yeah. and he doesn't. And that's why it's so short, is because he never makes it through the whole thing. He only gets to the first part and then, boom, shuts it down. Because he'll see and refuse to define good for himself. And so he moves past onto something greater. So that's a fun little journey, isn't it? Like, the Bible has all these incredible design patterns. And when you start looking for it, like, you'll start to think about this when you're tempted or when you see other people make bad decisions. You'll start to think about how they saw that person and took them for themselves or, you know, something like that. They saw, you know, drugs or alcohol or whatever, and they take it for themselves. And it turns out to be a bad decision. They say, that'll be good for me now. And then... In the end, it spirals into chaos. You know, it's or terrible. Yeah, they, they get caught by somebody and then all of a sudden, yeah. you know, it's blaming someone else. You're like, oh, this yeah. this person exposed me to it. Yeah. Or It's incredibly accurate to the human condition. Yeah. And it's not just isolated in one story. It's not just the fall. All of the fallen world follows the same pattern. It's really just our, as humans, it's just really our just uh, fatal character flaw is really what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's incredible the way that the Bible talks about it. And this is not the only design pattern in the Bible. There's tons of them. So if you read, um, and this is stuff I don't have notes for, but if you read, you'll see a lot about crossing like chaotic waters, passing through chaotic waters. And that turns into like baptism and all this kind of stuff. And if you listen to like their podcast, they talk about that too. Um, but what I was thinking about this morning is the design pattern of cluing people into the fact that, um, that Jesus parallels Moses in a lot of ways. And so, like, you think of that, um, in the Luke version of Jesus' birth narrative, it tells of how Jesus is born, and then King Herod comes in, and in an attempt to get rid of the king of Israel that has just been born, he kills all of the infant males under the age of two, which has occurred exactly once in the Torah, Moses. And Moses escaped that somehow, and of course, Jesus is 
escapes that by his family fleeing to Egypt. Again, a stronger connection to, uh, to Egypt. But what's interesting in this case is that Egypt is normally this place of danger, but in this place it's a place of safety because Herod is now acting like the evil pharaoh. Very interesting. I think if you read the John narrative, uh, it, it skips the birth narrative of Jesus and has this whole weird sequence about uh, the word and the word was with God, you know, talking about the divinity of Jesus. The word was God. And, and it yeah. brings up Moses. It literally explicitly states that Moses brought one thing for the people and that Jesus was bringing in a new thing for the people. So now in two gospels, we have these strong connections to the fact that Jesus is going to be this new Moses. And a lot of connections that he's the new Adam to the new human, but specifically also that he's going to do a lot of the things that Moses did, but in a different way. He's not going to lead people out of slavery to people, you know, physical slavery, building things. He's going to lead people out of a spiritual slavery. Right. And it follows Moses' design patterns. So what's the first miracle that Jesus performs? Do you remember? In his early, he actually hasn't even started his ministry yet. He's at a party and he turns water into wine. wine. Yeah. What is the first plague? It's the Nile. It's now, yeah. The Nile turns, turns from water to blood. So Moses turns the Nile into death, and Jesus turns water into life. Yeah, turns yeah. it into, it's a symbol about his life. But also, hey, that's another connection. That, you know, if you think of, you're sitting down and reading the Gospels, and you read that account, you're saying, hey, I was already thinking about Moses because they brought him up. And now there's another connection because Jesus also transfigured water into something. Um, and what else? There's another one I was saying, though. Uh, oh, yeah. And then, like, parting uh, the Red Sea and crossing through the chaotic waters and stuff. Jesus walks on water and calms storms and other incredible epic things like God did through Moses in the Torah. Right. And ultimately did leave his, uh, lead his people out of slavery to sin. You read Romans, and it's all about slavery. Right. Slavery to sin and to death and to all these other things, which directly ties into Jesus freeing people and Moses freeing people. So that's just another design pattern. I mean, they're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. And the Bible's ability to cross-reference itself is incredible. Like, once you start looking for them, you're like, hey, wait a minute. Like, I see what this is doing. Like, we could have gone into that whole design pattern about um, height. So there's more. I, I need to look into it myself. So I don't have material there. But it goes into more because there's Goliath. And so it, I think it seems like Israel sees that Saul is tall and good and make a good king. And then... Goliath shows up, and he's really tall, and they shut down. This, what are they going to do? Because they have a bigger king. Now what? Yeah. And, you know, David comes in, and David is, we're told that he's actually small, that he's not all that incredible looking, and that he turns into a better king because he's chosen by he's, God. Yeah, he's appointed by so God. So don't look at the fact that, you know, David is this incredible warrior king because he killed the Goliath in, like, the dumbest way possible. You know, it's not about that. It's about what God defines. So, very, very interesting, and I can't wait to find more. So, what do you think? What do you think about all that I've shown you today? No, I think I think it's really cool. I mean, when you really, I feel like a lot of times we um, kind of do a very minimalist um, effort to kind of like, at least in devotions and stuff like that, we're like, oh, we got like, you know, we got 15 minutes, like maybe we'll like mm -hmm. read uh, 10 to 15 verses and then kind of like make a few application points when at the same time we're kind of doing a disservice to ourselves. Yeah. Um what I've actually started doing, um, I use this um, Bible app. It's called Logos Bible. Mm -hmm. And actually, it has kind of has everything that the concordance has, but it has it like all in one. Mm -hmm. 
So you got your your Greek and your Hebrew definitions mm-hmm. as well when you click on words and you hold down on the word, as well as um, when there's a letter. I believe it's when there's a letter next to a word. Also, it cross references mm-hmm. the other Bible verses where that same exact word was used before. Yeah. That's good. So, yeah. yeah, it's just really cool just kind of seeing how that it all, like, plays together and kind of, like, um, even though these people were appointed by God and, you know, these people like Moses and Abraham and all mm-hmm. those people, you know, they, they did a lot of great things. But at the mm-hmm. same time, we all had that same simple character flaw. Yeah. Yeah. And I bet, and I just thought of this now when you brought that up, I bet if we look at the Moses narrative and see him striking the rock and stuff, I bet it uses the same words. The temptation to strike the rock instead of just obeying what God told him to do and speak to the rock. Yeah. Or even when uh, Abraham, when he brings Isaac up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, be, I bet you, I bet you, I don't know if all that same language would be used, yeah. but at, at the same and time. And even if like, it isn't, I mean, the key words are like the training wheels. It clues you in that there's a pattern and then you start to be able to do it without seeing the words. You just see the images, which is why it works in the gospel. The Bible language completely changes in a Greek. And so there's no way to use, you know. You can just use the same Greek word for see, which they don't. But they use the imagery of Jesus being shown what is full of glory and encouraged to take it for himself. So the words are the training wheels, but the imagery, you start to see it even where it's not placed, where you can see that someone is being tempted. Right. And it's, it's, you, start yeah. to see a, you start to see a cycle. Yeah, you all of a sudden a you're thinking of tov, ra'ah, and ka. Like, it's incredible. I can't get enough of it. I'm such on a high for this stuff right now. Like... I just want to go and find design patterns all over the Bible now. No, this, this, yeah, no, it's, it's really, I, I don't know. It's, it's really incredible when you kind of just like sit back and look and you're like, realize you're like, wow. Like, mm-hmm. even when you think about it, like when, when there's certain people that say maybe, oh, there's some certain things in the Old Testament, you know, that are not mm-hmm. applicable to today. But yeah. at the same time, where we all, we all struggle with it, the basic things. Mm-hmm. We see something that we like, mm-hmm. um, we get tempted by it, we define mm-hmm. it as good. Then we make the decision. We take action. Yeah, and then, and then we, we get the consequences. We get, we get consequences, and then yeah. we push the blame on something else when those consequences come upon us. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, something that I was thinking, and I don't have a super strong connection on this, but it was after transit on Tuesday night. I went to bed at like eleven thirty, and then all of a sudden I was like, "Wait a minute!" And then I had to like get up and like get on my lights on and like get in my Bible because Cody referenced um, the psalm where he says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." Those are the same words. And so I looked into it. And so instead of having take, we have taste. But taste is reminiscent of the fruit. And so now we're seeing instead of, you know, yearning for the fruit, yearn for God, put him to the test and taste that he is good. See, ra'ah, that he is good, tov. Great. So David was clearly aware of this when he's writing this psalm, you know. So, and um, something they address in their podcast is... Is this like some new, weird way to read the Bible? Like, are you looking for secret codes in the Bible? And they just kind of slip in the point. They're like, this seems to be how the apostles and um, people in the Second Temple literature that we don't include in our modern Bible, this is how they seem to have read Scripture. And they didn't go into much detail on it, but I looked into it. And the two best examples of this are the stoning of Stephen. Stephen goes on this whole sermon. And what he does is he carries the theme of stubbornness. So he goes through a design pattern of stubbornness through all of the patriarchs. And then the author of Hebrews does the same thing in the Hall of Faith. He follows a design pattern of faith through all of the patriarchs. And so it seems that this was, you know, an ancient way to read the Bible. It's not new, like, to look in for design patterns. They were totally clued into it, and that's how they read it. That's how they used it. All of the um, apostles' literature that you read, you start to notice 
anytime they start referencing Old Testament things, it's always in a sequence. It's never just one, like like your father Moses. It was like your father Moses and Abraham and so on, so on, so on, so on. Always. It's great. It's incredible. Right. It's totally lost on this American Western church, I think, because we do look at it as moral literature and we look at it in pieces, in sections. Because it's hard. It takes a long time. You know how long it took me to make and color code that entire like note oh, thing. I, it took me I can't, hours. I can't even. Hours. I can't even imagine. I, I I was gonna say probably at least like eight yeah. hours. I'd and that was off of someone already going through it. But I had to go through, and you know, I was double checking their work, looking at it in Hebrew, color coding everything, making sure I had references for everything, seeing how it all tied together. Network. I almost built a web to show how it all works together. I'm still working on a good image to show it, but like. It is not an easy way to read the Bible, but it's a rich way. You know, the results of seeing that design pattern, like you're going to see temptation everywhere in the Bible and you're going to see it everywhere in your life now. Like just the more you think about it. Right. Yeah. It's incredible. And there's so many of them. Once you start to pick up on them, you're like, hey, that kind of reminds me of this. Him turning the water into wine kind of reminds me of that other time water was transfigured in the Bible when it was transfigured into blood. So, you know, just continually thinking about Moses and, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's great. Are there any more? Are there any that like, now that you're thinking about it, you think like, hey, I think that might be a pattern. I mean, I don't really know if this kind of relates, but uh, jo- Jonah, when Jonah and the story of Jonah and the whale, Jonah, mm-hmm. tr- Jonah tried to flee. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that, that same that same pattern of when you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're faced with something and it's kind of a, more of a, like a fleeing mentality or yeah. kind of instead of like, you know, facing the consequences of, yeah. of your actions. I bet that there is actually a pattern for people who disobey who have instructions and run. So Jonah's like our key example there. But it is funny that you brought it up because if you listen to the Bob Project podcast, someone in the, they do part of the podcast um, or that specific podcast, uh, two of the episodes were done at a conference. And so they had audience bring up questions and he brought up, one of the audience people brought up Jonah and he said, do you think it's like a coincidence that Jonah started his ministry or like fled from his ministry in Joppa and Peter begins his ministry in Joppa, according to where I don't have the reference for that. But and Tim Mackey, the Bible genius on the Bible project, uh, he brings up, he says, yeah, it's totally a pattern. And that's like he doesn't go into a ton of detail on it, but he's like, and notice that the person going in the ministry journey in Acts there is Simon, the son of Jonah. His father's name is Jonah and he leaves from Joppa. And there's other um design patterns that I know would be great to go into is like three days. So Jonah is in the, the big fish for three days. And there are other, and I've heard Tim talk about this before too, other connections to, um, to the Messiah that aren't necessarily in the prophetic literature, but are in the narrative literature. Prophets and other people who kind of mimicked the Messiah's behavior before the Messiah was there. It's like a whole new way to read the Bible. It's like yeah, no, it's, this it's whole kinda, new kinda, layer has yeah, just been it peeled back. Like opens up like a whole different, yeah. like uh, I don't know. It's kind of like I feel like sometimes we we kind of look at the Bible with a blind, almost like blinders on. We kind of like mm-hmm. you know we we look at it very narrowly. We're like, oh well, this you know this is a story, and you know this is you know well, there's some application that we can get out of this, or there's some sort of you know moral tale, or mm-hmm. you know as kind of like um, when we went through like ethics class, like everything yeah. had to do with everything had to do with morals and the moral hierarchy and mm-hmm. 
Um, but but at the same time, we're we're kind of doing you know like I said, we're doing a disservice when we're not we're not going a little bit deeper into it and mm-hmm. you know looking at like hmm, maybe this is a pattern. Maybe this person, their father, you know, they had that same exact pattern because. Yeah. Chances are that's it's really what it comes down to. We kind of just we follow in the footsteps of the people that are in our life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people that we we spend time with, or the people that have influence in our life. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to become like those people. Mm-hmm. There's even so like the Adam and Eve part of the temptation pattern. There, uh, I skipped one. I skipped Cain and Abel, which follows. It's not as strong, but it's there. It kind of starts to clue you in. Like as soon as. The whole garden narrative happens and they're kicked out. It says, and then they had these children, Cain and Abel. And here's the story about them where Cain immediately makes another mess up. So one pattern of a tremendous failure is immediately slammed in with another of Cain's failure by murdering Abel. And it uses some of the same patterns there where it doesn't use see and take. It doesn't use your clue words, but it uses your uh, clue pattern of God comes back and he says, like, where's Abel? So th- there's your God, the Cole, the voice of the Lord, comes in and challenges him. And what does Cain do? Do you remember what he says? He totally shifts it. He's like, am I my brother's keeper? Like, am I supposed to be walking? Is, is, like, is it like, yeah. is it my responsibility to yeah. look over my brother? And yeah. He's like, and God immediately calls him. He's like, I'm not dumb. Like, like I know he's dead. Right. Yeah, <laughs> the blood of your brother back cries to that again because he God yeah. like already knew he'd seen, he'd seen what Cain had done. Yeah, he had. Yeah. So Cain was influenced by the same, you know, sin narrative. So yeah, it does. Knowing what's behind tends to explain what's in front. And also what's in front sometimes makes more sense of what's behind. Like the lots in the Aiken story. Right. It makes no sense. Why did they cast lots? Until you see that they cast lots a few more times, actually. One that we used there was they cast lots to determine that Saul was king. Again, after he'd already been chosen as king. Why? Just as you're binding, just to see there's a stitch that leads you somewhere else. Uh, and another place that it's used is, well, I can't, Jonathan, Saul is in battle. Saying he wants to have the Lord on his side. So he says, you know, woe to anyone who eats. The, the army of Israel will not eat of any food until, like, we have victory. It's this, like, dedication. And nobody tells Jonathan. And so Jonathan eats this honey. And the battle starts to go really poorly. And God is totally silent. They're like, what's going on? And so they cast lots and find out that Jonathan had taken honey. And then... Jonathan goes off and he's like, well, that's dumb. Like, my father's an idiot. Why would he even say that our eating food has anything to do with this battle? And then Jonathan isn't killed like Saul promised the perpetrator would be killed. And then they still, I think they win. But, like, the point is, you know, there's connections there to how the lots work and how strange they are. Because it doesn't make a lot of sense, but they kind of, again, clue you into their own patterns. It's this whole network, this whole gigantic web that one person and probably one group of people will never, ever be able to untangle the whole Bible. It's incredibly dense. Amazing literature. This is why I was so fired up on Tuesday. Yeah, I spent all day working on this on Tuesday. I can understand why you were, like, so fired up, because it's it's so good. It's just so rich, and, you know, there's never a time where you you pick up your Bible, and then you Mm -hmm. get done reading your Bible, and you're like, oh, this is a waste of time. Yeah, and if you do, you were not reading hard enough, like, because... And if you do, you you weren't reading, like, you were just skimming. Yes, yeah. that's really what it comes because to. Because every word of this book is incredible. You know, every injected word is incredible. Just those strange, why did he see that? We already knew he sees that. Right. It's all so dense and clues you into so much. It's amazing. So yeah, go listen to the Bob Project podcast and watch the videos. They're, the video series is the simple way to start on YouTube. Uh, they have a whole playlist of them. 
But um, but no, I definitely get it. I definitely get to start listening to those podcasts. Yeah, because the podcasts are way deeper. Like in the video, it's in five minutes. How do you explain two entire narrative design patterns in five minutes? And the answer is they just quickly show. It's kind of more just showing how it kind of it webs together and kind of showing like you know how the the whole story kind of fits together. Yeah, and they see like they use only a piece of the pattern which is seeing and taking and having bad consequences. And really, if you look at the color-coded notes there, I have a lot of codes and like there's a lot more to it that you can't go into in five minutes. There's the pattern of God saying to the hero, Moses or Joshua, you know, get up or go to that place because this is happening or whatever. Uh, There's other codes. There's codes of what the idol is. There's codes of hiding and shame and all kinds of themes. And you can't go into that in the five minutes. So, like, they try and they give it, they give you a really good overview in those five minutes. But definitely recommend go listen to the podcast because they go into detail for hours. It's like four episodes. They're all an hour apiece. And, like, it's incredible. I can't get enough of it. Yeah, no, it's really just like a, the, really the Bible Project videos are more just kind of more of a bird's eye view sort of thing. It's kind of yeah. just like a little bit, a little teeny glimpse and mm-hmm. kind of like a big overview as instead of kind of getting, you know, more into the nitty gritty and more into mm-hmm. like the, the, the fine details of it but i mean yeah. i feel like yeah i mean at least for me in the past year it's kind of more for me when i've been doing my bible studies um right now i'm going through um the gospels right now um mm-hmm. our church actually just went through the whole gospel of john and we actually ended we actually ended on easter nice it's kind of which yeah, was kind cool. of funny how it like all lined yeah. up so that the last you know last chapter of john was on easter that's cool but no, right now I'm individually. Well, I just went through Philippians, and that that was that was great. Mm-hmm. That was that was really good, and kind of went through that, and went through word through word, and kind of like who that uh, who that Paul was talking to, and you know, kind of referencing that. But right now, just going through the Gospels, it's just like incredible, just to mm-hmm. see how many times that Jesus is referencing back to the Old Testament. Yeah, it's almost always. And my dad said the other day, and this is new to me, and I haven't looked into it, but he said apparently everything that Jesus said on the cross is a reference to the Old Testament. Every single word, which I don't know. I haven't looked into that. That's just something I heard offhand from my dad, but my dad's pretty trustworthy. So I bet he's right. So that's something to look into too. That's, it's on my list, my checklist of things that I need to look into. That's on there because that's interesting that he would reference entirely Old Testament material. And some of it, I know some of it, I recognize uh, like forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I think that's in a Psalm somewhere. Yeah, so I would encourage you and to anyone listening to look into design patterns. So go understand from them how these design patterns work because they explain it better than I do. So consider this entire podcast as like an advertisement for the Bible Project because they are so, so worth your time. Like the Bible is so much deeper than I think a majority of the Western church has a grasp on. Like there's a reason that it is the greatest literature that has ever existed. And it's because it is inhumanly dense. Their ability, like my parents, they love Fringe. Fringe, they always talked about how it, uh, like, I don't know how many seasons Fringe ran for, but they said, like, in the beginning, they would set things up and never follow them up until, like, five seasons later, it would come up again. They're like, how did you, like, did you write the whole thing out and then, like, cross-reference the whole thing? Like, how does that work? The Bible is way better. Way better. It is inhuman how well it's all tied together. Like, the fact that it could have this entire design pattern running just under the surface while doing a million other things that those same passages are doing. And needless to say, too, it's not it's not all the same authors writing those, referencing those same things, yeah. using those same words. Yeah. 
they're all writing in their own narrative style, and yet they're all guided to reference the same material. Whether they knew that they were doing it or not, I don't know, but they did. Yeah. So, and that's just one aspect of reading the Bible, okay? They put one video to that. It's an ongoing series that they have on their YouTube channel, and I think it's going to have 18 videos total. So that's just design patterns only. So, like, listen to the rest of their podcasts, watch all their videos, because the Bible, I've learned so much in a year. More than I've ever learned about the Bible, I've learned this year. And I've learned it because I've learned it from them and then applied it to my own study. And it is, your mind will be melting out of your ears onto the floor because of how amazing this book is. If you're reading the Bible and it's not turning up anything, then it's time. It's time to learn and actually be taught how to read it because right. we, we don't teach that in Sunday school. We just expect you to learn from other people and that's not yeah. how it works. And I mean, I feel, I feel like even in youth groups in junior high and high mm -hmm. school, I mean, for me, like... Until I went to college uh, for the first time, or actually, really, it was really Nathan Nathan Rockefeller that mm -hmm. that taught me how to read the Bible. Because you know, growing up in Catholic church, I really, I never really like got that opportunity. It was kind of mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, like you'll have a few lectors that read uh, a few verses from like the Old Testament and New Testament, yeah. and then the priest he's the only one that's allowed to read the Gospels. Yeah, yeah. And then you get that like small little message, and then a little homily that like supposed to apply it. But at the same time, I feel like if you're not studying the Bible from yourself, you're, you're missing mm -hmm. out on so much. You're missing out on so much more that God has to offer you and mm -hmm. so much more wisdom and um, so much more just understanding of just like, you know, just the human condition, really. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's crazy because wars and wars have been fought over the ability for the common man to read the Bible. And then in America, the common man just doesn't read the Bible, even though we have the right to finally after all this fighting. We have the right to read the Bible, and we don't. And when we do, it doesn't make any sense. Like, this is a tragedy. We need people to learn how to read the Bible. So, if you couldn't tell, I'm really passionate about this idea. And um, I want to teach off of their How to Read the Bible series. I want to use it as a video curriculum, and then go into detail as a class. So, I I'm working on that. <laughs> That's coming down the chute, but then I, I really do want no, to teach. That, no, that, that, yeah, no, that would be really awesome. Yeah, no, and I'm kind of, kind of learning it myself, too, and kind of how to, you know... Um, tone down the language a little bit because I'll be a small group leader for in August for fifth and sixth grade boys at my nice. church. And I don't know, it's always like mentorship has always been something that I've been really passionate about, but mm -hmm. you know, just for me, like a lot of these things I learned later on in my life mm -hmm. and like, I'm like, man, like if only if I knew this at this yeah. age, I would be so much yeah. farther along than I am now. But like, like yeah, I no, would. it's just really cool. Like, no, I'm just super passionate about it. I mean, mm -hmm. There's yeah, nothing no, it's, like it. It's yeah. There's there's nothing. There's really nothing yeah. like it. There is no literature that can even if you don't believe a shred of it, it doesn't matter because there's no literature on earth that is as amazing as the Bible is, which should stand out as a testament to how inhuman it is. Written by humans, but inspired by humans? No way. No way. It is too too deep. It's like I always compare it to DNA. If you stretched out the DNA in a single cell, it would be as tall as you are. If you tied it all together, all the DNA in your body, it would stretch across the solar system twice. And yet the DNA is crammed in your body somehow. And the way it does it is like engineers haven't mastered it yet. It like it crams in so much and it's so dense that the cell can't even use it. It has to uncurl it and feed it through special machines and curl it back up into its denseness. Okay. That's what the Bible is like. An incredibly dense rock of information that it's inhuman. Yeah. Humans cannot cram I mean, DNA in that spot yeah, just, like, and 
humans can't cram that much information into the Bible either. Yeah, just to kind of add on to that, just like how that it was all coordinated together yeah. and how these people like, if you if you look at like you go through each book of the Bible, mm-hmm. like it is not like whatsoever like as far as chronological order, it mm-hmm. is not in chronological no, order it's whatsoever, not and it's just like crazy how that it all fit together and you know how that people that came before and became after you know that they they somehow all work together to you know make this narrative all fit together without contradictions there's none all that deep information you can pull out of it and there's not a single contradiction it's it's absurd how amazing it's uncanny like it freaks me out and intrigues me like i just want to keep going you can spend your entire life studying this book and a lot of people do and never reach the bottom of it. It's like just scratching the surface. There's so much, right. so much to unpack. So I'm really passionate about people reading it and knowing how to read it. I think that's something that has to be taught. I don't think that's a passive skill that you can learn. I think you have to learn from the experts and it shouldn't be locked behind a Bible college degree. It really shouldn't be. No. It should be the right of the common man to read it and to understand it. Right. So, yeah, and I mean, I feel like there's never, yeah, there's never really, um, enough ways either to read the Bible. I mean, there's there's so many different ways that yeah. you can kind of examine and dig deeper mm-hmm. into it that I feel like that if we're just, you know, reading it and just taking it for face value and not, you know, looking into the historical context and then looking into, oh, how did, how does this tie back to the mm-hmm. Old Testament or how does this tie, how is this tie into Jesus's narr- the narrative mm-hmm. that Jesus has as yeah. well? I mean, I feel like you're just missing out on so much mm-hmm. more knowledge that there is to yeah. be gained. Yeah, there's so much. And that's just one way. Like my dad the other day was reading into uh, part of David's history. And what was it? Oh, yeah. So David was betrayed and like it said he uh, fled barefoot through the Kidron Valley and like went to a certain place. And that somehow predicted before it ever happened that Judas was going to betray Jesus. Jesus was going to leave Jerusalem, cross the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then Judas would come and, you know, betray him there. And there's all kinds of imagery in the Kidron Valley. Like there's just so much. Like, everything you've said, I'm thinking, like, hey, wait, I know other things. And, like, I could have gone off on a hundred side trails and just on stuff that I've learned, like, this year since I graduated. And it's not because, like, like our youth group is amazing. Our youth pastor is phenomenal. But this is a whole new thing that I don't think that the Western church is tapped into at all. And I want to change that. That's, like, my mission. I want to change that. And if it takes my whole life, so be it. I will change it, though, because I want people to read it and understand it. And the Bible Project is really good at doing that. The fact that they can take huge, huge biblical theological concepts and boil them down in five minutes is really a testament to how good they are, both at unpacking and then repacking, you know? Yeah, yeah it's good stuff. Yeah, because I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, with how complex and how intricate the Bible is, like, it, it really does take a concerned effort uh, mm-hmm. to really just kind of pack that down at only five minutes. It's like, yeah. wow. Yeah, and that's why it takes them, like, three weeks to make a video. <laughs> They just finished their uh, Spiritual Beings series that came out last night. So I'm excited to see what new series they're having. But I want them to finish their How to Read the Bible series so that I can teach on it. Because I need it to be done so I can <laughs> use their videos. Yeah. So moral of the story, learn how to read the Bible and then read the Bible. And they're a good place to start. So like I said, you can find them. Uh, I don't know their URL off the top of my head right now, so I'm not going to give it. But you can get it off of redeemingthetime.online. Go to the resources tab. Uh, and then I think they're the first entry because I use them a lot. So any of the material you hear me go off of, like I'm directly crediting them today. Uh, but a lot of the stuff I've learned, if I'm ever going into a Bible study, I'm using skills that they taught me. So it's important, I think, to keep them right there. Because if you want to do that too, then they're the place to go to.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. We went on quite the tangent there, but I feel like it was a really good discussion. Uh, Justin made some really big points about really taking initiative to understand the Bible in a different way. It, it isn't what we treat it as. It isn't little snippets of moral commentary. It isn't about understanding how to be a better person. It's so much more than that. And that's what's so incredible about the Bible Project is that they've actually adjusted the way I think about scripture. And all of a sudden, the weird things in scripture make sense because it was never scripture being weird in the first place. It was my own understanding and fitting it into my own box. And as it happens, uh, I had some really bad misconceptions about what scripture is. And they helped to show that to me. So I hope that you'll check out more of their content at thebibleproject.com. Again, you can find that URL at redeemingthetime.online slash resources as well. And that is all for today's episode of the Redeeming the Time podcast. I hope you enjoyed. I would love if you shared this around and uh, ignore the terrible noise of clanking dishware. And I hope that you indeed did learn something from today's episode. In the meantime, we will see you next Friday, hopefully, if I don't have to delay again, on a brand new episode of the Redeeming the Time podcast. Have a good day, everyone.